You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. Well, if, uh, again, if this is your first Sunday, let me catch you up on where we've been uh, as a church. We just jumped into a new series uh, called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, and it is like it sounds like. It's Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We are going back to those first 39 books in your Bible. Some of us got to dust that off a little bit. We're getting back into that part of our Bible, and we are watching for how the person and the work of Jesus is expressed and foretold and and pointed to in this section of our Bible, okay? And, And we're doing that because Jesus told us to. He told us to. You remember the, the, the very first sermon in this series, uh, Rodney had us read that uh, story in Luke where Christ, after his resurrection, he's, he's on the road to Emmaus and he's walking with a couple disciples and, and he's unpacking to them all of the things in scripture concerning him. And it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he says to them basically, hey guys, FYI, This whole book, the whole thing, all the laws, all the promises, all the prophecies, they're ultimately pointing to one person, me, that I'm the punchline of the Bible. It's all about me. And and to see this is is to totally change how we look at Scripture, to totally change how we look at Scripture. Um, When I was 18, I took a trip with a buddy to Rome for the summer, and we were visiting a friend of his in Rome who was a a painter. So we show up to his flat, and the guy starts getting out his his artwork for us to to look at. And, uh, And he pulls out this piece, and he sets it there, and it's a big old canvas painted totally white, and right in the center of it, there's like this oblong circle looking thing painted in purple. And he sets it there, and he's like, what do you think? And it was just, um, it's one of those awkward moments where like a grown man is bearing his soul to you and you just don't get it, right? Um, and I'm looking, I'm like, well, it's, yeah, oh man, it's uh, circle, um, love the, 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 uh, the circulosity of it is strong, seeing that. He's like, you don't see it? It's like, I, yeah, of course I do, right? But why don't you tell me what you see, and then we can compare notes. And, uh, and he was like, it's about being born again. Okay. Uh, he's like, don't you see that, that oblong shape in the center? That's, that's an egg, and an egg represents life, things hatching and coming to life. And the white on the purple as they interact, those are Easter colors. This is a springtime painting, things being birthed to life and coming to life. This is about the new birth. And I was like, man, I was going to stick with circle, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's great too, right? Now, now here's the thing. Uh, whose interpretation of that was right? Was, was mine or was the artist's? Well, it had to be the artist, right? It, the artist's ter- interpretation was the correct one because no, no matter how I'm seeing things, right, no matter what my interpretation of that is, only the artist can determine the meaning of their art, right? Only the artist can do that. And that's what Jesus was doing on that road. The painter himself has said to us every brushstroke, 
from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing, it's all about me. That's the interpretation. So as we go back to the Old Testament and we, and we read these stories, the question is no longer, is this text about Jesus? He already settled it for us, right? It is about him. The question is, how is this text about Jesus? How does it point us to Christ? In what way does it portray his character or his attributes? That's what uh, this is. Uh, now, we're going to watch today a story unfold here as we attempt to answer that question, the how question. It's probably my, my single favorite story in the Old Testament. It's kind of like the greatest, it's a deep cut, right? The greatest story that like nobody has ever heard, right? And, and I, I love it so much, and I want you to love it because it just, it has something so important and precious to teach us about Jesus, and, and, and it says something equally profound about us. Uh, and uh, so I'm just going to show my cards this morning and uh, tell you up front what we're going to see here. And, and it's this, that Jesus Christ is our king of loyal love. Jesus Christ is our king of loyal love. That's what we're going to see. And, and even when I say that phrase, loyal love, even though I haven't even unpacked it, I know that, that we don't have to do a lot of work here this morning to know that's something that we need to know more about and to, and to get a, a heavy dose of, right? Because I don't know about you, but when I look around at our culture, I'm not seeing those two words together a lot. We live in a cold place, man. Anybody else feel that? Like, it's, it is cold. We are all receivers of, and if we're honest, distributors of, not, not loyal love, but fickle love, cheap love, selfish love, love that doesn't sustain, it doesn't last over time. Just, th just think about uh, marriage for a moment. Like the, the one massive institution that should scream to us about love, and it's a total mess. Right? It's a total mess. The, the divorce rates are still roughly what they've been at for years, which is 50% of the population. For millennials, now, it's a little bit better, but before you get too encouraged about that, understand that it's just because we're not getting married, y'all. Right? We've seen that thing, and we're like, no, thank you. Right? We, why, why would I want to enter into a committed, binding, monogamous union when every one of those examples in my life are falling apart around me? Why would I want to enter into that? And so, so we're, not, we're not getting married. Or, or, or think, about, um, think about things like the corporate world. How much has the greed for upward mobility and upward movement and more money and more power, how has that choked out our ability to love our coworkers well, right? That now we just see them as stepping stones to like the next big thing, like the next power move, the next raise. Like it affects us. Our love is fickle. Or, th or think about just how you interact with folks who wrong you or wound you. How do you respond to them? Think about how quick we are as a culture to rush to just blast in them online, blasting them to our friends. Like, this is, this is the culture we live in. We, 
the love that we play with is not loyal. It's fickle and it's cheap. And our world is cold and we need a collision with a different kind of love. We need a collision with a different kind of love. We need to see a different kind. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, get them out. We're going to be talking about this idea of loyal love today. What it is, what it gives, and what it means. What it is, what it gives, and what it means. We have a lot to cover and a short time to do it. So let's get into the passage. Verse 1, you can read it with me. It says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Stop. What's happening? (laughs) How are we one verse in and I already don't know what's happening, right? Who is Jonathan? Who is Saul? Why does David feel some commitment to show kindness because of them? What is that about? If you're confused, that's okay. It's because this story doesn't actually start in this verse. This story starts way back in 1 Samuel, a book before this moment. So let me give you some context so we can understand what's happening in this moment. Uh, 1 Samuel, Saul is king, first king of Israel, and it is a mess Saul sins in some big ways against God, and God says, Saul, you're on your way out. I am now anointing and appointing a new king who's going to replace you, and his name is David. So old Saul doesn't like this, right? That doesn't bode well for him. So he decides David's probably better off dead than alive. So he makes it his life work to kill David. The one complicating factor of this, of course, is David's best friend in the world happens to be Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan decides to collude with David and become an informant for him about his dad's plans to kill David. Are we tracking? So, so he makes this promise to David that I'm going to inform you about what my dad wants to do to you. And in exchange for that information, Jonathan asked David to make a covenant with him. Make a covenant. Now, now that word covenant, you've probably heard that word before, but I just want us to get a sense of what that word means. It is a very big deal in scripture it is massive and in, in, in some ways if you want to track the movement of your bible throughout the old and new testament you can track it in terms of covenant a covenant is it's like a contract but way bigger way more important it is the most sacred and solemn agreement two parties could make to each other this, this is a massive commitments that are binding and unbreaking. God, you see God making them with man in Scripture. You see man making them with man. It is a very big deal. And, and Jonathan proposes a covenant to David. And here are the terms of his covenant. In 1 Samuel 20, he says this. Jonathan's talking, and he looks at David, and he says, Here are the terms. David, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So essentially what he just said is, I want you to pledge to me something. Please love my family. Don't wipe us out. I know you're going to become king. I know you're going to become the next ruler of Israel. Please please watch out for us. Please don't wipe us out. 
this is the this is the terms of the covenant that he makes and and that covenant has a has a binding result on David it causes something in David and that that thing that it produces in David to act on the basis of this covenant is is a very important word in scripture it appears all throughout your bible it's this hebrew word hesed hesed it's a massively important concept, and, and that word, said appears all throughout what we just read. It appears here as, as steadfast love. Steadfast love of the Lord, it says. In the first verse that we read in 2 Samuel, it appears as kindness. But, but it's hard in English to get a good grasp of what this word would have meant. There's no perfect equivalent. Uh, and so the, the best we can do is kind of come up with these things. I want to submit, the word we're going to use this morning is loyal love. Because hesed has, has a tie to covenant. It is a love that is not based on how I feel about you at a given time. I'm not, sh- I'm not demonstrating love because of an emotion that I feel. I, I'm demonstrating love because of a covenant that I made. It's a, it's a covenant-keeping love. It's a loyal love. Hesed. If, you, if you're looking for a, just a clean definition, it would be this. Hesed, or, or loyal love, is an unbreakable commitment to do good to another based on a covenant or pledge. You feel me? Let me say it again. Loyal love is an unbreakable commitment to do good to another based on a covenant or a pledge. And that's exactly what David's doing here at the beginning of 2 Samuel 9. He is is operating out of this loyal love based on a prior covenant he, he made. It has been almost 20 years since that moment in the field with Jonathan. Saul is dead now. Jonathan is dead now. And here is David, inaugurated as the king of Israel. And we come to 2 Samuel 9, and this is the scene. David, now, almost 20 years after the moment, is on a manhunt to show loyal love to someone based on a promise he made almost 20 years ago to Jonathan. That's where we're at. Is everybody up to speed? We know where we're at? Okay. Now, who is that someone? Well, David's about to find out. That's the point of the text. He's about to find out. And what unfolds from here is, in my opinion, scandalous. It is scandalous. Let's see. Verse 2 says this. We're back in 2 Samuel 9. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, the hesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. So we're told David discovers here the someone that he's looking for. And I just, I want you to feel something as we're working our way through this text. The writer here is doing something. With each detail he gives about this someone, he is wanting us to feel an escalating sense of how inappropriate it is for this man, the man he's describing, to be the recipient of kindness from David. He wants us to feel with each detail he gives how inappropriate it is that this is the man that David extends kindness to. Let me show you what I mean. First thing we learn is that he's a son of Jonathan, right? 
which is great. He's a son of the, the guy that David loves. Except that to be a son of Jonathan makes you a grandson of who? Saul. It makes you a grandson of Saul, right? Don't forget this, right? This, it's so hard, right? Because we hear these stories. You've heard of Saul and Jonathan and David before. We, we know this. It can just feel like a nursery rhyme or a fairy tale. It's not. These are real human beings, and these are real encounters that they have. So just get this in your head. Don't forget, this is the same Saul who spent the better part of his reign as king chasing David around the desert with an army trying to kill him. What does that do to a person? This is the Saul who threw spears at David for fun in his palace to pin him up against the wall. This is the same Saul who was radically committed to David's destruction. Now, just, just imagine for a moment. Try to get there. Imagine the pain that trauma like this over a long period of time produces in a human heart. What kind of, what kind of pain does that produce in you? Uh, I, just, I just want you to think in your own experience about trauma you've undergone. Maybe it was momentary, maybe it was prolonged. Is there a face to that pain? Is there a face to some of that wounding in your life? someone who, who hurt you, and it wasn't just a moment. It was, it was weeks. Maybe it was years. Maybe it was someone that you really loved and trusted, and they betrayed you, and they wounded you, and they have done what feels like irreparable, psychological, physical damage to you. Let me just say, I, as a pastor here, I'm, I know stories in this church like this. It breaks my heart, and I'm just getting it secondhand. Um, now imagine that that's you, and maybe it is. Now, now imagine willingly obligating yourself to pour out blessing on all the relatives of that person and being eager to do so. Do you see how radical this is? How scandalous this moment would be? And that's just the first layer, right? Because this person that David learns about, he is Saul's relative, and if he's Saul's relative, that means that he's also the guy that was part of the rival dynasty, right? And I don't know if you're up to speed on your history lessons, but historically, it doesn't go well for the last regime when the new regime comes in power, right? You, I mean, you, you don't even have to be a historian. You can look at regimes around the world. When the new guy shows up, the old guy and his crew die. It happens a lot, and we see it happening in the Bible a lot. There's biblical precedent for a, a king of Israel to come in and literally slay the entire line of the previous king because he's obsessed with securing his own security of, the, of his throne. He's obsessed with making sure that there's no threat to his reign. And so this would have been an expected tradition among the kings. And so this, I mean, feel that. You're, you're part of the rival dynasty if you're this guy. So this is strike two on the guy. This is not the type of person that David would historically been pouring out kindness to. Do you see? This is not someone like that. That's strike two. And, and strike three, if you will, is this. To top it off, we're told the man is disabled. 
Now that, that doesn't strike a nerve in us per se. There's not really a stigma in the same way that there was back then about disablement. But just consider this for a moment. So he says that he was crippled in his feet. Uh, feel this. This is not an incidental note. It's not like him saying, like, and he had blue eyes and they sparkled, right? It's not, that's not what he was saying about this man. He was telling us something so we would feel a response here. See, in the ancient world, physical brokenness was often seen as a reflection of spiritual cursedness. It, physical brokenness was seen as a, as, as a reflection of spiritual cursedness. Oh, terrible things have happened to you? That must mean you're a terrible person. That must mean God is punishing you. That must mean you're under his curse, right? We see this all the time in scripture, the book of Job. What's the whole premise? It's that Job's friends don't get it. Job's a righteous man and, and he has judgment like poured out on his life and they're going, well, oh, the only people who get bad stuff happening to them are bad people and, and you're saying you're a good person and that doesn't make sense, right? It didn't work in their economy, right? Uh, John chapter 9, the disciples are with Jesus. They see a blind man on the side of the road and what do they say? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You see the implication? Somebody had to have done something bad because blind people aren't just blind. They're cursed, right? This is, a, this is a reflection of a spiritual curse. So let's just put it together. Who is this person we're talking about? The man that they found for David to bless was a crippled cursed member of the rival dynasty and the closest relative to David's former abuser. That's who they found. How in the world do you respond to that if you're David? Let me ask maybe a, a better question. How does our world tell us to respond to people like this? I'll tell you how. You don't owe that man a thing except your wrath. Don't pour out kindness. Why would you do that? And yet here, here's David filled with the Holy Spirit and he says, bring him to me so I can show kindness to him. Bring him here. Worldly love has no tolerance for unworthy people. Do you feel that? Worldly love has no tolerance for unworthy people, but loyal love is ready to extend kindness. Why? Because it's grounded in something deeper than our feelings. It stands on something. The ground underneath its feet is firmer than just, how do I feel about you in a given moment? How do you strike me right now? What have you done to me or for me? And let me let that determine how I respond to you. It's on sturdier ground than that. It's not about feelings. It's not about your performance. It's, it's grounded on something bigger than the person we're loving. It's grounded on covenant. That's what loyal love is, an unbreakable commitment to do good for another based not on them but on a promise I made. I made a promise, and I'm going to do you good. No matter what you've done to me, no matter the threat you are to me, no matter how much of a rival you are to me, no matter if you're an enemy to me or not, I made a promise, and I want to do you good. I want to do you good. 
So that's what it is. That's what this loyal love is. But now, what does it give? What does it offer here? Well, let's look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, you feel it? Came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. You can, like, smell it in this passage, can't you? Fear. There is fear here in Mephibosheth. Listen, Mephibosheth isn't dumb, guys. He knows how this economy works. He knows being summoned to the rival king's palace doesn't typically go well. He's not waiting for a bear hug from David, right? That's not what he thinks is coming. A guillotine, maybe. That's probably on his radar, but not a, not a bear hug. And then in the midst of that fear, in the, in the moment of panic, David speaks these words to him. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear. Do not fear. For I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Don't fear. What does loyal love give? The first thing the text says it gives is pardon. It gives pardon. Mephibosheth is shaking with dread. And the great king of Israel, the the one who has conquered armies and nation states, is standing before him in all his glory. And all of a sudden, I wonder if you notice, the writer changes the way he refers to David. He doesn't call him king anymore. Now he starts referring to him as David, his personal name as he speaks to Mephibosheth. He says, David said, David looks in his eyes. I wonder if he got down on his knees because Mephibosheth was down on the ground. He looks him in the eyes and he says, do not fear. My enemy, my rival, don't fear. I want to show you kindness. I want to show you kindness. What would that feel like to hear to know in your gut that you have it coming and it never comes. My, my grandfather passed away last month and we went to his funeral. And after the funeral, my dad shared a story with us about him. And he said that when he was a kid, my dad, about 10 years old, he was on the driveway at their house and there was a pile of rocks and he had his mom's tennis racket and he was just hitting rocks into an open field across the street picking them up one by one and he picked up one rock and it was just way too big for the racket he throws it up he swings it and it ricochets off the racket to the right and goes straight through the windshield of my grandfather's Ford F-150. Now you don't know my grandfather but you should know uh, he was not a sweet man Uh, This was a tough man. This was a man who uh, was a World War II veteran. He spent a year in a Nazi prison camp. 
He uh, endured and survived the 86-mile the Nazi death march. This was my grandfather. He didn't put up with much, okay? He didn't have time for that. And my dad knows, today I die, um, okay? And he just kind of resolves that uh, in himself, and, and he doesn't even do it. He just sits down on the bumper of the car, and he waits for the wrath to be poured out uh, because uh, he knows that in just about five minutes, his dad is going to walk through the door to get in his car to go to work. And so he sits down, and he waits. Uh, and my grandpa comes out, and he sees my dad sitting on the bumper, and he puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says, uh, what's wrong? And my dad looks up at him, doesn't even say anything, just looks back down. My grandpa looks over at the windshield. He says, uh, you hit a rock through the windshield with a tennis racket, didn't you? says, yes, sir. And my grandpa looks at him, and he just says, well, I guess I'm going to have to get a new windshield. He pats him on the back, and he gets in his truck, and he drives to work, and he never mentions it again. And my dad can hardly tell me the story. He's crying so hard. Why? Because pardon is power. Pardon is powerful. It will change you. And that's what David extends here to his enemy, pardon. He gives him that, and he's not done. The next thing that David extends to Mephibosheth is provision. And I will restore to you all the land of your father, Saul. This is a pledge that David makes to Mephibosheth that basically all of your future needs are taken care of. All the land, imagine all the land of the previous king that is not yours, I'm now giving to you. In later verses, he tells us that he sends servants to till that land to make it profitable for produce so that Mephibosheth will have everything that he needs and all of his sons will have everything that they need. He just wrote Mephibosheth a blank check and said, every worry you had is no more. It's taken care of. Can you imagine being on the ground in that palace and in one second, every need you ever had, every fear you had about your future has dissolved. It's gone. It's no more. It doesn't exist. You have been given a permanent future. He has provided for all of this man's needs. Pardon, then provision. And as if that wasn't enough, the royal love of the king gives him one final thing, Look at the rest of verse 7. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, this is a little bit of a weird moment to me, right? What did, because what did he give him here? Well, it seems odd because it, it seems like what he gave him was, was like um, p permanent meals, Right? Like when you like stand in line and get that like Chick-fil-A for life card at the opening, you know, it's like these are, it's meals forever for you, which is, that's, that would be great, but, but didn't he just give him that in the last thing he promised? He just gave him all the land and said, I'm going to till it and make it profitable. You're going to have food. And then the next thing he promises is that you're going to have food. That can't be what he's saying, right? He didn't, he's not promising food after he promises him food, right? No. That's not what he's doing. It's because food wasn't what David was offering him here. He was offering 
him himself. His company, David, gives Mephibosheth his presence. That's what he gives him. He was saying, I want you to dine with me always. I want you to dine with me always. And this moment is so radical in the text that the author feels it necessary to say it four times in the chapter. And David dined with, with uh, Mephibosheth always. And Mephibosheth ate at David's table always. Over and over it keeps saying this. Why is this so special? What's so unique about this? Because to eat a meal with another person, just think about it. Eat a meal with another person every day in your home is not something enemies do, right? That's not something enemies do. Trump and Bernie are not having dinner tonight together. That's just not a thing that's going to happen. You don't do that with your enemies, right? You don't even do that with your friends. If I had a buddy who came over every night and wanted to eat at our table, I'd probably buy him a gift card to Chipotle and say, bro, just, I need some space, right? That, that's not how we interact with our buddies. But this is something that families do, isn't it? And that's the point. That's the point. That's why the writer says in verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Do you hear it? The king of Israel, in an expression of love, turned his enemy into his family member. That's the point of the passage. Are you starting to see where we might be heading now? (laughs) What does it all mean? Let's put it together. What does this mean for us? Well, if I got on that piano over there and I sat down and started playing you a sonata, you know, a sonata is a piece of music and it comes in several movements. If I started playing you a sonata, but I left off the last movement of that piece, what would happen? Well, you would still hear music right? And you might even like the music that you heard from me. And yet, there'd be something incomplete about it, right? Because the final movement of of a sonata is what sort of brings the whole thing together. It's the tie that binds. It brings the resolution that makes the whole piece work. And this story is begging for that resolution, for that, that final moment to, to, to play out and, and make it all mean something more than just, hey, some king way back when was nice to a disabled guy, and you should probably be nice to people too, right? Without the final movement, that's all this story is. It's, it's some good tips about how we should be sweeter to people, And look, we should be sweeter to people, right? That's not wrong thing to conclude from this. We should be expressors of loyal love to others. But without the final movement, there's no engine in our car to get us there. We have to have the rest of the sonata for it to make sense. And thanks be to God, that final movement came. When one born like David, 
in the town of Bethlehem was anointed like David to be the king of the Jews. And just like David, this king made a covenant as well. A covenant to do good to his enemies, except that he signed this covenant not just with a promise from his lips, but with blood from his veins. He signed that covenant. And now, because of this loyal, promise-keeping love, he pursues his enemies not to crush us though we deserve it, but to bless us. Do you see what's happening? That's the final movement of this song. Jesus Christ, the fulfiller, and to everyone who comes to his summons at his palace, he gives them pardon instead of wrath. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen, the king of the universe is getting on his knees and he's looking you in the eyes and he's saying the same thing. Don't fear. You don't have to fear. If you come to me, I will not cast you out. There's pardon for you. I'll lift my wrath from you. You don't have to fear. He's giving us pardon. He's giving us provision in himself. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everyone who comes to the King in faith is taken care of forever. You have every spiritual reserve you could possibly need to thrive and flourish in this life. Do you know that? When you come to Christ, it's all yours. And then for eternity, the whole everything becomes yours. You are a co-regent with Jesus of the universe. This is what scripture teaches us. He provides everything for us. And most importantly, he gives us his presence. Now, I, I, was so, um, I was so moved this week when I stumbled on this text and, and made the connection here. We're in Revelation now, chapter three. These are, these are some of the last words that we get from Christ in all of Scripture. And this is what he tells one of the churches there. You've heard it before, but just think about this in light of what we've heard. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and what? Eat with him. And he with me. I will eat with him. The king is still offering us a meal. You see, this is, this is family talk. This is family language. He's saying, I, I know your arrival. You've been after my throne since the day you were born. And I want to break bread with you still. I want you to come to my table. You've been hurling spears at me to take my life with every sin you commit. And I'm saying, come to the table. I want to feed you, dine with you, eat with you. I, I want to take you from enemy to family member. That's what he's offering us this morning. Protection, provision, and his presence.
Who wouldn't want that? There is one requirement, though. There is one thing that it asks. And we see it at the end of this chapter. And I want to land here because I I find this moment incredibly, um, quite frankly, bizarre. Uh, Let's go to the last verse in our chapter. Verse 13, this is how the writer closes the whole thing. And, And he says this, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, period. That's a great way to end it. Don't say anything else. Oh, wait, you have more. Now, he was lame in both his feet. Why would you do? Look, I, I write for a living, and I don't want to tell this guy how to do his job, but it seems to me you want to end on a brighter note than that, right? It seems like it would have been good to stop at the sentence before that sentence. Why do you end with this weird thing about his feet being jacked up, Right? Why, why is that the last thing I'm thinking of in this passage? It confused me for like weeks as I was studying it, and then it occurred to me. I, I think it's this. I think what he's saying is this. All this blessing happened to Mephibosheth, and just so you know, it wasn't because he was awesome. You see? Just so you know, it wasn't because he was awesome. The loyal love of Christ, it gives us so many things. But it takes something from us too. It takes away our ability to brag on ourselves for the kindness we receive. We don't have that anymore. We have everything else, but we lose the ability to brag on our own ability for what we've received. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. You cannot brag when you get this kind of kindness from the king. There's just no room for it. Mephibosheth didn't go home that night and brag to his friends about how awesome the king thought he was. Because David never told him that, right? He just said, I'm going to pour out kindness on you despite your circumstance, despite your condition, despite your failings, despite your lineage. I'm giving you blessing. What else can you say but thanks be to David? You can't say anything else. And the same way you and I, if we trust Jesus, we will not be saying for eternity, look how strong I was. Right? Look how how worthy I was. Look how obedient I was. No one in heaven is saying that. You know what you'll be saying? My king had mercy on me. He had mercy on me. And I was a rival and I wanted his throne and I wanted him dead and I was spiritually disabled and he bent down and he poured mercy out on me. That is the cry of heaven. And it's the cry of God's people. My king had mercy on me. Loyal love requires one thing and that's that we lose our bragging rights because the love we get isn't based on our excellencies. It's based on Christ's. Let's pray.
My king had mercy on me. My king had mercy on me. Oh God, we so don't deserve this. But our king wants to have mercy on us. God, please help this room see this is more than just words on a page. You have mercy on us, God. For everyone who casts their lives on you, you are ready to pour out blessing after blessing. You are ready to give us your presence forever. And all we have to do is come lame and crippled and broken, just like we are. God, would you give us that heart? I don't want to be strong myself. I've tried it, and I'm not good at it, and no one in this room is. We just want to own that. And I'll just invite you, as we're praying, just where you're at, if you've never owned that, you've never, you've never just looked down at your spiritual feet and said, I can't walk. That you do that this morning and realize that he'll still come for you anyways in love. Will you trust him? Maybe you've never done that before in your whole life. Do you trust him this morning? He wants to be the strong one for you. Will you trust him this morning? Trust him now. Tell him, I, I trust you. Jesus, you've done the work I can't. I trust you. And if that's you, I, I, I want to be able to, to celebrate that with you. If, if you trusted in Jesus for the first time this morning, nobody's going to embarrass you, but would you just mind putting your hand up in the air so I can get eyes on you and just, just see you out there? If, if you trusted him this morning, just throw your hand up in the air right now so we can get an eye on you. I'd love to just be able to celebrate that with you. Keep your hands up. All around the room, anybody who's, who's trusted in Jesus in that way. Okay, we're going to pray. Father, we are, we're so thankful that you've done the work we can. And we bless your name in Christ Jesus, our great covenant keeper. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.